Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for today, for each of these ladies. Uh, thank you so much for this Gospel of Mark um, and all that it has to teach us about you, your kingdom, your word, discipleship, uh, and Jesus. And just pray that you would um, bless the words I have to say today to um, our hearts and minds. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we begin right away with Mark 1.1, and this is, this is really Mark's title for this gospel. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, or the Christ, the Son of God. Uh, and so, right there, that, now the title we think of, we think of the title as the gospel according to Mark, or the gospel of Mark. But that title wasn't attached to the, the um, gospel until later on, although it was attributed to Mark by the end of the first century, as we talked about last week. Mark's title, the title he gave this work, is this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Uh, that word beginning, very interesting. That, that same word uh, is the first word of both Genesis and Hosea. And Mark has, a, has several points in making that his first word. I think it's very intentional that that is his first word. And he is telling us that the same God who created the world and spoke through the prophets, Genesis and Hosea, and spoke through the prophets, is still at work uh, in the gospel story. This reminds us of the authority that is behind the gospel, the authority that is at work. It is God who is at work. So Mark connects God's, um, God's work in creation with his word, his spoken word in creation, to the word, Jesus. John 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He connects those things together just as John does. Secondly, it also signals that Jesus is the fulfillment of the purpose of creation and the fulfillment of the prophecies concerning Messiah in the Old Testament. I think the basic thing that Mark is saying here is this is as big as creation itself. Mark is telling us that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, did not begin with his birth, nor with his baptism, which started his earthly ministry. It began at the dawn of time, before the beginning, as Mark will show us in a little bit. So he says, this is the beginning of the good news, which is the word gospel, evangelion in, in, the, um, in the Greek. And when we hear the word gospel, we think of four guys, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But that is not what Mark means by that, that's not what any of the writers of what we know as the Gospels, or as the Gospel in four versions, uh, as, as the Gospels. Literally, the word means good news, and it is the story of salvation found only in Jesus Christ. It is the good news that was foretold by the prophets in the Old Testament. Just as one example, Isaiah 63, 1 says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news, gospel, to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness 
uh, and release from darkness for the prisoners. That's, a, that's a, obviously a prophecy about Jesus. Who did all those things? Who's the only person to ever do those things? That's the good news, the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. And Mark is telling us Jesus fulfills this and many other prophecies. You see, the gospel, the good news, isn't a set of stories and parables about Jesus. And it isn't, even more, isn't a list of do's and don'ts. It isn't even a set of beliefs about Jesus. The gospel is a person. Jesus, the Messiah, and all he has accomplished on our behalf. So he calls Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, and the Son of God. When, when we say Jesus Christ, when anyone says Jesus Christ, for whatever reason, they're saying sometimes more than they realize, because Christ means Messiah, which is the new NIV um, version of that, uh, interpretation of that. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. And he is the Son of God. He is God incarnate, God in the flesh, fully God, fully man. In this very first verse, Mark gives us a glimpse into the identity of Jesus and his focus from 1-1 to 16-8, in this case, is going to be on Jesus and who he is and what he has done. So that's the title, the first verse. And then we move on to the prologue, which is verses 2 through 13, beginning with the ministry of John the Baptist. And it says this. Oh, look, there, here's a map. I'm going to show you this first. So here, just, we don't know for sure where John was baptizing, but what makes the most sense is just south of the Sea of Galilee, somewhere there south of the uh, Sea of Galilee, where the Jordan River uh, begins there. So that's where, um, approximately where he would have been uh, uh, baptizing people. So beginning at verse 2 through verse 8, it says, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah, the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. We're going to go back to here. So this is really something unexpected because the title is The Beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And the first thing he says is, John came baptizing. And it's like, well, is this about Jesus or is this about John? No, it's about Jesus. And that's the purpose of the quote uh, in verses 2 and 3. But why would Mark begin with John? Why not begin with Jesus' uh, genealogy or with Jesus' birth as Matthew and Luke do? That would seem to make more sense. No, in starting with John, 
as I just said, Jesus is going back farther than both of those things. He is going back to creation uh, in quoting, uh, as it is written, uh, in quoting what, John, what the prophecies say about John. Uh, and so he is anchoring, Mark is anchoring the good news about Jesus Christ in scriptural prophecy. He is, in other words, proving what he has just said about Jesus, that he is the Christ, he is the Messiah. And the beginning of the good news came long before even Jesus' birth. So John appears on the scene, and that also as Mark tells us, was prophesied in the Old Testament. Mark quotes, actually, he says the prophet Isaiah. Actually, this is a mixture of quotations from Isaiah, uh, Isaiah 43, primarily, 40, verse 3, Exodus and Malachi, which is kind of interesting. He took from the Torah and from the prophets um, and, and uh, from uh, the minor prophets in Malachi and the uh, major prophets in Isaiah to create this. That was a, um, a common rabbinical technique that they would quote and say it was from one verse, but it was a kind of a mix, and the primary verse being Isaiah 40, verse 3. And, and in this prophecy about uh, John the Baptist, there are three people, there are three individuals, God, who will send the messenger, who is John, to uh, prepare the way of the Lord who is Jesus Christ. Uh, now, he also goes into a little bit about John's clothing and diet, which is kind of weird. In fact, one of the commentaries said that uh, his clothing and, and diet were uh, nearly as unusual in John's day as they would be in ours. Uh, and so it, it is kind of weird, but it's, there's a reason for that. And it is meant to conjure up an image of Elijah. Uh, for, for the readers. And the readers and the original hearers would have absolutely made the connection to Elijah because the Old Testament identified Elijah as the one who would prepare the way for Messiah. And so this is in one sense a return of Elijah, not a reincarnation of Elijah, but a return uh, of Elijah to prepare the way. Now, there are two baptisms spoken of here. John says, I baptize you with water, but there's one coming who is greater than I am, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John's baptism was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, so it was a, a, a repent and be baptized, believe and be baptized, as we see throughout the um, the New Testament, where people come to faith and then are baptized. It is a temporal thing, it is a temporary thing, it is a provisional thing, and it is looking forward to something more lasting, more per permanent. Jesus is going to do something that only God can do, and that is baptize you with the Holy Spirit, give you the Holy Spirit to live inside you. Remember later on um, in... in uh, uh, John, in the Gospel of John, Jesus said, I will send to you the, the Holy Spirit. I will send to you a helper. So it is eternal, it is greater, and it is something only God can do in the giving of the Spirit, which is really interesting because John says, who is going to do that? Jesus is going to do something only God can do, which means either one of two things is true. Either somebody other can God, than God can do something that only God can do, or Jesus is God. And that would not have been lost 
on his readers either. So here's what Mark Edwards, or not Mark Edwards, uh, James Edwards says about this. He says, these verses thus introduce John as the divinely ordained precursor of Jesus and Jesus as the manifestation of God. The quotation has, the quotation of, the, the, um, of Isaiah has the further effect of linking the life and ministry of Jesus to the Old Testament. Jesus is not an afterthought of God as though an earlier plan of salvation had gone awry. Rather, Jesus stands in continuity with the work of God in Israel, the fulfiller of the law and the prophets. And Mark has drawn all that together for us. And then we go on in verses 9 through 12, or 9 through 11, I guess here, and we have Jesus' baptism. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven you are my son whom I love with you I am well pleased now let's ask this question first why would Jesus be baptized this was a baptism John's baptism was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins Jesus didn't have any sins so why would he even be baptized? He didn't need to repent. Jesus is doing this as sort of a formal acceptance of God's call on his life. That, that he, is, he is saying, God has called me to this, and he's saying, I accept. Um, he is submitting to all God has for him as the Son of God and the Savior of the world, and he knows exactly what he's getting into, exactly what that means him. Now, three things happen here. The first thing is that Jesus saw the ripping of the heavens. And I'll talk in a minute about did somebody other than Jesus see and hear these things. He saw the ripping of the heavens, the opening of the heavens. In the Old Testament, this term was used as a sign that God was about to speak or act and that he was about to reveal his purposes in some way. Uh, secondly, there was the descent of the Spirit. Now, the Spirit did, that descended was not a dove. It wasn't a dove that came down and sat on his head. The descent was dove-like. His descent was like a dove. In other words, hovering. That conjures up also creation, where the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. Just in the, that same sort of way, the Spirit hovered over Jesus. And thirdly, there was a declaration from heaven where God identifies Jesus as his son whom he loves. And again, there is a wealth of Old Testament prophecies about the son of God behind this. So as God's son, Jesus can not only speak and act for God, but he also can speak and act as God. That's amazing. Now, according to Mark, all of these things were only seen in detail or heard by Jesus. If you read the other Gospels, you see that, that the other disciples were like, well, I thought I heard thunder. <laughs> Something was going on. And John uh, says that, 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 or excuse me, the Gospel of John says that John the Baptist, had, God had revealed to him that the person that he saw the Spirit coming down and resting on like a dove was the Messiah. 
And so he had had some prior revelation. So here's what I'm going to say about this. I think that Jesus was the only one that saw the full effect. And I think that, um, that people around were like, something's going on here. This isn't just any regular baptism that, that John's doing. But they didn't understand it fully. John the Baptist probably more than others, but uh, not fully. Why doesn't Mark mention that? Because Mark is focused on Jesus. And what matters is Jesus' baptism and what Jesus heard and what Jesus saw, nobody else. And so I think that's why he focused on that. Now, in verses 20, or 12 and 13, again we find something unexpected. At once, immediately. By the way, I did count, actually, the commentary told me. Over 40 times in Mark, most of them in the first half. Immediately, at once, the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, meaning Jesus, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and angels attended him. If you want to know what the whole wild animals thing is about, I don't have time today, but it's interesting. You can ask me later what it might be about. So immediately, again, this is unexpected. Yeah, I love you. You're my son. Now go out there into the wilderness and be tempted. It's not what we would expect. You know, that, that this is his first gig, is out in the wilderness with Satan. It says that he was sent, though, by the Spirit, although that word sent is not strong enough. It literally means he was thrust out. He was cast out. He was driven out by the Spirit, by God. This is divinely orchestrated here into the desert for a time of tempting by Satan for 40 days. Again, um, the original hearers would have seen the allusion to both uh, the Exodus, 40 years, and to Elijah, 40 days on Mount Horeb, waiting for God, that this was a time of testing for Jesus. Just as both of those uh, events were times of testing, this is a time of testing. However, just like those other times, it was also a promise of deliverance and a promise of God's presence to be with him. Uh, just as it was for the Exodus and for Elijah, it is for Jesus. Uh, so the coming of Jesus signals the defeat of Satan. Uh, this is what David Garland says. He says, now Satan must contend with a new Adam who has the power of heaven at his side and angels as his cornermen. C.S. Lewis says this. This is a great quote. There is no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. The good news is Jesus has already won, and Satan knows it. As, as David Garland says, Jesus' clash with Satan in the desert clearly did not end in a tie, and Jesus won. And so then, after this time of temptation, Jesus begins his ministry in Galilee. I thought it would be fun to show you um, a, a couple of pictures of this. It says, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Oh, where are my pictures, man? Oh, this makes me sad. My pictures didn't make it in. Okay, that's okay. Uh, I had pictures of the, the Sea of Galilee, which would have been great. Now I can't go backwards. There it is. Um, 
but it's beautiful. And, and there, there are steep uh, banks on one side. That's where the pigs fell off. And there are gentler slopes. That's the eastern side. The western side, there are gentler slopes. Some of you have been to Israel are like, dude, you don't know what you're talking about. Uh, so and, and that's probably where the feeding of the 4,000 and the feeding of the 5,000 took place. But anyway, uh, so after, it says after John was taken to prison, or in this case after John was put in prison, literally it says after John was handed over to prison. Again, Mark is intentional in using this because those exact same words will be used for Jesus when he is handed over to the Romans. And so there's a foreboding sense of of what's coming, what's happening to, to John as the forerunner of Jesus in every way will also happen to Jesus on a much grander scale. Now, Mark will return to John in chapter 6 and his imprisonment and what happens to John. Right now, his focus is Jesus. And he tells us that Jesus went out into Galilee and proclaimed the good news, the gospel, throughout Galilee. And what he proclaimed was the coming of the kingdom of God. Jesus is announcing an event, the coming of God's new world, which is even now breaking into the present. And Jesus says, the time has come. Uh, he, he says, the time has come. That word time is kairos. And it literally means, what Jesus is saying, the time has been fulfilled. This same word is used in Galatians 4.4 when Paul says, when the set time had fully come, Jesus, God's son, God sent his son into the world, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those under the law. And that's what Jesus is saying here. The time, God's timing, has been fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is here, is at hand, is near. Mark is not interested in telling us precisely this occurred. Uh, Mark is not interested in telling us when precisely this occurred on the human calendar. The only thing that counts for him is the time seen from the divine side. Jesus announces that the time of waiting for God's intervention is over, which means that all that God has said and done in history is reaching its denouement. It's a French word. It's wonderful. It's climax. Uh, If Jesus is indeed the Christ, the Son of God, then the kingdom of God is at hand. But when God steps onto the stage of human history, it always comes as as a surprise and as a scandal to those whose field of vision is limited only to finite human possibilities and whose time is measured only by the tenure of transient human kings. In the midst of the present moment, one can easily forget that God bestrides time and history and works by a different clock. We'd be good to remember that when we think God is late in doing something. So the time has come, Jesus says. Uh, The time of the kingdom of God. Now the Jews would have understood that God was and is the king of Israel. But the Old Testament also prophesied that Messiah would come and Messiah would usher in an eternal heavenly reign of God. In other words, God's kingdom. And so Jesus comes and says, the time has come. The kingdom of heaven is near, has come near. In Christ, that time has come. It is the definitive moment in history. And that word for near means physical nearness, like Christy and me up here. Christy came near. It means 
physical nearness, not soon. It's coming soon. It's on its way. It's not a time thing. It's a physical thing. So you're with me. You're tracking here with me, right? In Jesus of Nazareth, the kingdom of God makes a personal appearance. He's it. He's near. They can reach out and touch him. The Messiah, the kingdom of God, has come. And Jesus' message is repent and believe. That word repent means to literally turn away from something, 180 degrees away, moving the opposite direction. I heard a guy speak on this once, and he said, what repent means is it's a 360-degree turn. It's like, ah, no, 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 that's not it. So uh, it's, it's 180, but we do that sometimes, don't we? Yeah, I'm going to turn away, but, you know, I was kind of enjoying that thing over here. <laughs> we do that sometimes. It's to turn away from one thing and turning toward another thing. It's turning away from sin and turning toward God. Repent and believe. Away from sin, turning, repent, and turning toward God. Belief. It is, as one scholar said, the changing of the total direction of one's life. And there is no turning back. And then he goes from here to the call of the disciples. And it says, as Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once, Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little far farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, immediately he called them, and they left their father, Zebedee, in the boat with the hired men and followed Jesus. Now, this story always puzzled me. I'm like, never met the dude. He walks by says, follow me, you don't know how long, where, why, what, and you get up and leave. You know, these guys maybe are a little touched in the head that they get up and follow. Well, first of all, I believe that it's, it, is, it signifies the authority with which Jesus called them. But they probably had prior knowledge of him. Uh, in John's gospel, Peter and possibly some others were there at the baptism and knew, ooh, something, something's going on here. Um, and he had been all around Galilee preaching, so they probably had heard him preach. And it's, it's possible, it's just possible, and hear me say this, they may, James and John may, may, hear me say may, have been Jesus' cousins. I can't go into how I know that may be true, uh, but they may have been Jesus' cousins. But their willingness to drop everything and follow, they're at work, man. To drop everything and follow uh, right away, immediately, is amazing nonetheless. And Jesus says, I will make you fishers of people. This is not a benign reference. Like the kids' song, you who are younger won't remember this. I will make you fishers of men, fishers of men. This one right here, she's in charge of children's education. <laughs> At Avery, she knows that song very well. This isn't a benign reference. This is a picture of discipleship. Think about what fishing is for the fish. The fish must die. Life cannot go on as it once did for the fish. So too for the disciples of Jesus. We must die to ourselves. Life cannot go on as it has before. 
And Jesus says, follow me. That's amazing. Nobody else said that. No other rabbi, no other prophet, no other anything. Follow God, yes. But nobody said, follow me. Jesus said, follow me, because in following Jesus, we are following God. I found this very interesting. God has a pattern of calling people throughout Scripture, and it's this. A command, follow me, with a promise, I will make you fishers of people, followed by obedience. They dropped their nets, and they followed. A command with a promise, followed by obedience. And for whomever is called, life will never be the same. Well, I'm not going to read all of what comes next in the interest of time, but the disciples, we are told, went to Capernaum, which became Jesus' home base uh, during his Galilean ministry. And Jesus there went into the synagogue on the Sabbath and began to teach and began to teach with authority. By the way, in Capernaum, there is a synagogue. It is ancient. It's not the same one, but underneath uh, that, they have found a floor strewn with first century coins as if it was just leveled very quickly which is what happened when the Romans came in we'll talk about that later in Mark Uh, Mark is not interested in telling us what Jesus taught he's interested that we know that Jesus taught with authority his focus is on the authority with which Jesus taught and then after that He acts with authority in verses 23 through 28. He heals, he casts a demon out of a man. And the people are amazed. They'd never seen or heard anything like this before. Who is this guy? He's he's from Nazareth? Really? And they had never seen someone speak or act with such authority. Even the demons obey him. You know why? Because the demons recognized what the people didn't, that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and Jesus had come to break the rule of Satan. And then at the end, the man whom he heals, he tells him to be silent. He commands him to be silent. And we're going to see this again. Why would he do that? Well, in this case, the demons who said to Jesus, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? Yes, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. They spoke truth. But Jesus would not allow demons to be the herald of God's kingdom, and so he commanded silence. Now, he commands silence of others. Why would he do that? Several reasons. The first, in this case, that he wouldn't allow demons to herald God's kingdom. Secondly, miracles are great, but they're a lousy basis of faith because people end up just wanting you for what you can do. Remember in Aladdin, and he's saying this, this genie gig isn't good. Why? Because people, he, all he's saying is, what do you want? What do you want? What do you want? We're going to see that in a minute. The disciples are going to do that to Jesus. So miracles are wonderful, but they're a lousy basis for faith. Thirdly, Jesus is forestalling the inevitable opposition that will come to his teaching and his actions. Um, and he's, in other words, he's buying time, essentially, to make that time where he can teach in peace as long as possible. It wasn't very long. 
Finally, nobody, not even the disciples, can truly understand who Jesus is until after his death and resurrection. So he wants to make sure the message that's getting out about him is as accurate as it possibly can be. Well, in in verses 29 through 34, after this happens, Jesus, oh, look, there's the Sea of Galilee. There's Capernaum up at the northern um, shore. Uh, After this, Jesus uh, has a lot of people come to him. As soon as they left, immediately after they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. Then after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. So he goes to the home of of Peter's uh, Peter's home where his mother-in-law is sick, and Jesus heals her. And immediately, she gets up and, um, and begins to serve Jesus and others. That should be the default position of any who follow Christ. Um, and, and then after sunset, it tells us, after the Sabbath had ended, they couldn't come knock on Peter's door until after the Sabbath had ended, but as soon as it did, many came, and all, the whole town came, and many were healed. That doesn't mean said, Jesus said, yeah, I'll heal you, but I'm not going to heal you. He healed all that needed to be healed, and it was a lot of people. It was many people is what uh, Mark is saying. Now, there are two responses to Jesus after all of this. Very, or two responses. One is Jesus' response, and one is the disciples' response. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. So Jesus' response is this. He wants time alone with God to pray. He had people crowding in on him. He had uh, a lot of demands on him, and his default response was alone time to pray. If Jesus needed time alone with God to deal with the stress and the demands of his life, what do you think the level of need I have is to spend time alone with God? Life goes better when we spend time with Jesus. Amen? The disciples' response, and notice they aren't even called the disciples. They're called Simon, also known as Peter, and his companions. (laughs) Yeah, Simon and his companions went to look for him. Actually, but literally, it says they hunted him down. They were on a mission to find him. Why? Because of what he could do for them. And when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone's looking for you. Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. So the response of the disciples, of Peter and the companions, is to hunt Jesus down. Why? Because they wanted more miracles. Poof, what do you need? Poof, what do you need? This is, <laughs> this is my favorite quote I read this week. This is what David Garland says. He says, the disciples would like to accommodate this surge of popularity. More evening healings with a band concert, perhaps. They could even develop a Capernaum healing theme park. <laughs> That's the vision of the disciples, and they're way off base. Jesus refuses, and he sets out to do what he came to do. Preach the gospel 
to all who would listen. And then in the last five verses, we have the healing of a man with leprosy, but also with great faith. Now, you need to understand, and I did have you read a little bit behind what life was like for a leper, uh, because it was very difficult. They were forced to live in a leper colony, separated from everyone they loved, and away from the, the town and away from people. And they were shunned by the entire community. They were forced to be unkempt, to have ripped, dirty clothing, and not keep their hair looking nice. How hard would that be, women? Not keep their hair looking nice. And they had to announce their arrival anytime they went anywhere out of the colony by banging on things and yelling, Unclean! Unclean! Now, I don't mean to make light of this, but I'm telling you right now, if I had to walk everywhere I went shouting out my weight, I would be ashamed. And I don't mean to make light of that. I thought, what, what could I compare this to for me? And that was what I thought. What if you had to, everywhere you went, you had to yell out something that brings you shame? That's what they had to do. They would never again feel the warmth of human touch of another person because no one dared touch a leper until Jesus came. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus was indignant? We'll get to that. Jesus was indignant. He reached out his hand and touched the man. He reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest, which was what required by the law, and offer sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as testimony to them. Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. This man had great faith. You see, he didn't question Jesus' ability to heal him. If you are, you, you can make me clean, he said. He only questioned Jesus' willingness. If you are willing, I know you can do this. And Jesus' response in your Bible probably says he had compassion. It actually says he got angry. Uh, at this. Why would he be indignant? Why would he be angry? I believe he was angry at the sin and the devastation that brings such disease and at the way people had treated this man. We'll see it again with Bartimaeus, uh, the blind beggar, uh, in a little bit. It is a righteous indignation and it is Jesus' compassion for this man that causes him to feel it. Most of you know that I volunteer every summer at Royal Family Kids Camp for kids who are abused and neglected. I have felt righteous indignation as I have heard the stories of these kids that have been attacked with knives and burning cigarettes and all kinds of things you can't imagine. Been sold into prostitution by their mother. If that doesn't make you righteously angry, something's wrong. And that's the anger. Jesus feels here. But don't miss this. Jesus reaches out and touches this leper. That's scandalous. Everyone else 
he ever had seen since he'd had leprosy, even his family would not dare to touch him. To them, he was literally untouchable, but not to Jesus. How great is the compassion of our God. This man was no more unclean than anyone else standing there. His only need was for the healing touch of Jesus Christ. It's the same need we all have. And again, we see the command to silence, but the leper doesn't obey, and his disobedience has consequences, as it always does. I'm going to read you one more quote by David Garland. It says this, The kingdom of God is something that only God creates. It is not something built by valiant human effort. But that does not mean that one needs only to sit by passively and wait for God. God has already acted. The kingdom of God invading history in the ministry of Jesus requires submission in discipleship to him and demands all of one's heart, soul, mind, and strength, one's whole being. The calling of the first disciples shows that one must not only repent and believe the gospel, but must be also ready to leave and follow. Discipleship is a call to follow Jesus wherever he leads. Discipleship is also a call to service, like Peter's mother-in-law and like Jesus, who in Mark 10, 45 is going to say, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, even to the point of laying down his life. Finally, discipleship is a call to live in fellowship with other believers. And discipleship means accepting Jesus' demands unconditionally, and walking in obedience to him. In short, it is full commitment to Jesus Christ, dropping whatever nets we may covet to follow him, eschewing what is bad, the world and sin, and even sometimes what is good, like your dad in the boat, to follow Jesus. Over 37 years ago, alone in my bedroom, I answered that call to follow Jesus wherever he led. Not long after that, I found myself in the office of my spiritual mentor asking this question. Can God call someone to something before they're a Christian? And she said, I don't know. What is it you want to do? And I said, I want to teach junior high. And she said, well, my dear, you're called. Because anyone who wants to teach junior high is called to teach junior high. And in, the, in following Jesus then, I followed a call to teach. Over the years, I realized that what I love to teach the most is God's word. Flash forward to 2001, on a beach at St. Pete's Beach, and most of you have heard this story, my very best friend confronted me. I would say that she exhorted me to use the gift that God had given me to teach, but really, in truth, she rebuked me that I was not using the gift that God had given me to teach. And so, in uh, obedience to my best friend, uh, when I returned from Florida, I found myself sitting in the office of another spiritual mentor, Becky Maltemeyer confessing to her, her that in my four years at Brookside, there was a little something I had neglected to tell her 
and that is that I teach. Almost exactly 13 years ago, in the spring of 2002, she asked if I would take on this role of women's Bible study teacher for a handful of women, only one of whom is in this room, in the evenings, uh, and to teach the Bible. 13 years and 27 books of the Bible, some of them twice later. I'm standing here today to tell you that I'm answering again a call to follow. But this time, in order to follow, I must lay down a net, a net that I love. For over a year, my husband and I have been in prayerful consideration of this. And I believe that God is calling me to lay down the net of teaching the Bible at Brookside. This decision is 100% based on what Jeff and I believe God is calling me to do. We have a sense that there is something that God is calling me to. I have no idea what it is. But in order to say yes to that, I must first say no to this. And I really believe that if I choose to hang on to this net, however good it may be, however good I may be at it, I will be saying no to God and what he's calling me to do. Honestly, I don't want to put this net down. If it were up to me, I would keep teaching. But even more, I don't want to say no to God. That's a dangerous thing to do. I have no idea what he has for me, but I am taking a leap of faith, laying down my net, and telling God to use me as he will. Please pray for me, obviously. <laughs> this is not easy, and it is emotional. Um, but doing what is right is often not easy. Um, Mandy is here, and I am here to answer any questions you might have. We're ending a little bit early. Who knew I could do that? <laughs> I want you to know this, though, because this is probably a question many of you will have. Women's Bible study will continue, um, and uh, studies will continue to be offered for you to meet in community groups just like you have. The only change will be that I will not be teaching. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your confirmation. Thank you that even in this, this decision that we couldn't decide when to tell him and made the decision only because I'd had a Monday off from school that I could call my leaders first. You knew. You knew I'd be teaching about discipleship. You knew I'd be teaching about laying down a net. And so, Father, I lay it down before you to tell you I'm ready to obey you. Not that I can be an example to others, but, Father, because that's what the disciples did. That's what discipleship is. May we all lay down even good nets when you call. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, ladies.